Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter, bringing you original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I'll be scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. In the next hour, we'll be escaping through sound from one country to another, from our own prisons and from the isolation of lockdown. Dear Mum, Granny Susie, You would probably hate the idea of me writing this to you, but when asked to write a letter in lockdown, whether you like it or not, you were the first on my list. So before I begin, let me say sorry for these very public words. It's been months since a virus began its rampant journey around the planet. Months since the world stood still and we, its people, drew together under lockdown. Months without seeing you after work every day. Months without a mother's hug, a mother's dry wit that you do so well, and my days are all the duller for it. Who would have imagined any of this? The social distance demanded of us all. Our only face-to-face encounter since was through a garden fence and at a safe and surreal distance. We wanted to race forward and hug you, but reluctantly stood our ground. The new normal. Saffron misses her granny. I see your influence in her and how you helped me raise my daughter into the bold, bright, cheeky star before us. Though you're but a phone call away, I miss the laughter lines on your face and how you roll your eyes at our tall tales. Already, there's a heap of dressmaking in my house that only you can fix. I miss sitting at the table after work every day for dinner, chatting while you watch the chase and tea time telly. You know, I'm even missing Hollyoaks. How many times have I arrived at your door, grumpy and work-weary, to have my dinners handed to me? How many times did I thank you? I mean really thank you. Not enough, it seems now in hindsight. This enforced separation illuminates all I take for granted. All the years of depending on you, presuming you'll be there in the background to save the day. Well now it's our turn. The least we can do is stay away to keep you safe. One benefit of lockdown is that our spooky mother-daughter sixth sense has grown stronger. Even more than usual, we now text at the same time, we ring each other at the same time, send synchronised silly jokes to the family WhatsApp, and if mentioned, you'll smile and say the force is strong, as only a Campbell mother could. When the world starts turning again, I will be a better daughter. I will ask and listen, 
rather than just talk and moan about silly things that don't really matter in the grand scheme. We will spend time together because we want to and because we can, not just because you are the childminder to my daughter every day but the weekend. When this lockdown ends, we will slowly rebuild the things we've lost, but never without caution. You taught us independence, but this year has taught us how much we still need you. We will dance in your kitchen again. Instead of me sat lonely at home, reciting poems that I wrote about dancing in your kitchen, we will jive while the dinner burns. We will laugh more and share more. We will stare at each other more. I might even start watching Hollyoaks more. All my love, Julianne. That was a lockdown love letter from a daughter to her mother, read by poet and author Julianne Campbell in Derry. This was produced by Peter Curran at the Foghorn Company as an audio content fund commission for community radio stations across Northern Ireland. Now let's travel through sound from Northern Ireland to Eastern Europe, more specifically to the Czech Republic, where migrants from former Yugoslavia reflect on being displaced and arriving in the country as a refugee. This is episode one, Real People You Know, from the podcast series, Foreign Insiders. Zazwiecini Cizinski. Zazwiecini Cizinski. Zazwiecini Cizinski. Zazwiecini Cizinski. Zazwiecini Cizinski. Zazwiecini Cizinski. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Foreign Insiders. Migration and Humanity in the Czech Republic. The first time I met Milos Gavrilovic, it was a few years ago. I was looking for an old watch for a friend, and I stumbled on an antique shop. Chaotic, dense, messy. And that happened to be Milos's shop, Bric-a-Brac, a few steps from Prague's old town square. Inside the shop, just above his desk, there were two portraits hanging on the wall. One was Tito and the other was Václav Havel. What a strange couple, I said, pointing at the two. And he replied, yes, smiling genuinely, a strange couple. So I told him in his language that I lived in Sarajevo for a while. He went back in a small room and came out with a bottle of rakia, the typical Balkan fruit brandy, and two little glasses. Zhivjeli, cheers, he said and we drank a bottle of stories. Today on Foreign Insiders, we're talking to migrants of the Yugoslav Wars, people who came to Prague at the time when everything was changing. Morgan and I went back to Brikabrak to speak with Milos, to hear how things have changed in the last 30 years and how much has stayed the same. Milos and his wife, Sonia, arrived here in 1991 and he has been collecting one-of-a-kind objects ever since. Stuff that he wanted to bring back to Serbia as souvenirs. The plan, however, had to change. I came in kind of a rush with my wife from Yugoslavia because she was clever enough. She said, it's going to be messy. 
just let's go. And I said, nah. She said, yes, yes, trust me. We came to just hide for a couple of months, I thought. And then it dragged and dragged. But from beginning, since we had savings, yeah, uh, I, was, I started buying old stuff to take home. We came here autumn, but uh, in spring I discovered that Charles Bridge is beautiful to sit on. And then there was this Yugoslav fellow on a chain. He would fashion out of silver wire your name in 10 minutes. And I, I liked him and he didn't speak any foreign language. And I would spend every day an hour or two sitting on, on Charles Bridge and communicating with people while he was, you know, and, and then he told me, you should do something. He has strong moral ethic, like you should work. He said, no, no, last week there was, uh, before you came here, there was a guy, he would buy plates that he buys just off the bridge and sells them for double on here. You put cardboard box and you help me while we are one beside the other. And it, and I did 10 plates, sold them in a day, 20 sold them. And so I was doing this first summer. But I was spending more than I was making, so because I was like, you know, we said like a drunken American. And then uh, after a while, then now we are coming to my my wife Sonia, instrumental in every decision. <laughs> she said, "Look, uh, we have to do something," and I said, "I don't know." find a shop, uh, what do I do with the shop? She said, I'm gonna make dresses, clothes, and you're gonna sell it. And by the way, only one size, Sonia's size. She didn't have a mannequin, she made just, you know, to fit her, and if it fits, fits, if not, come on. It's one of, one of a kind. Then I realized that uh, when couple comes to the shop, and yeah, a, a guy is bored. So I thought if I bring my stuff here, guy's gonna be, you know, playing with my toys and while I sell the clothes. And that's what I was doing in the beginning. But how you felt, you and, and the others, you, Sonia, the other Yugoslav, have you ever felt to be a refugee here? Or have you ever felt to be waiting to go never, back? I was never really, I, I was never really, never homesick even before i i had an at one one instance on havelska tržnice i was selling uh sweaters made in serbia sirovojno quite fashionable beautiful thing and a, a woman came and when she realized that i'm from where i am she she started crying she asked what's happening with you i can you know like she cried like like a child because they love this country and so in the beginning, they never made difference who's who. They accepted Serbs, Croat, Muslims, whoever came here. And we were from all sides here. The war was going on for a huge amount of time back mm. there in Yugoslavia. Mm. Then the war ended. Mm. Have you ever thought then, okay, now we go back? Or it was in your mind or you skipped it from no, the beginning? No, no, never. It was never in my mind. Uh, first, uh, you have to know that the war didn't really end there in people's minds. They don't shoot each other. But uh, I go to Zagreb uh, and uh, kids kids playing, you know, there's uh, after rain, there's water and they're splashing each other. And, and one 
says to the other, Chachat is Serbian, like your father is a Serb. You know, it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's like bad, bad word. You know? You're smiling as you say this. <laughs> well, because it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, but, uh, but that, that's the, the fact. You know, so. Do you ever think about what you would be doing now if you hadn't left? Uh, I would probably, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, would, I wouldn't be smiling as <laughs> I wouldn't be I wouldn't be happy I would uh, probably be infected by the same disease <laughs> called nationalism uh, which is really disease and, and the plague mindset has changed for Czechs? I mean, if if the circumstances were similar now, oh, would you be welcome? Yes, yes, the same? It, it, it has changed. It has changed. Um, hmm. First thing, they, my landlady, I, I was the first tenant. She she didn't, not, I was first full stop around when what you see, there was nothing. So 25 years ago, my shop was the first. So once a uh, uh, shop near my small shop was uh, becoming vacant and I said shall I ask some of my friends she said yeah of course she said no offense but no Yugoshi like no Yugoslavs and I understood because in newspapers at the time all uh, uh, arm smuggling drug smuggling Yugoslavs mostly Albanians from Kosovo we knew that but it's all Yugoslavs so so I said okay and she said Ani Rusaki like not Russians okay like not not Germans because okay they were occupied by Russians and by Germans. like not not the American, they are arrogant. <laughs> she had, so she said, you know, to be honest, I prefer Czechs. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what she got at the end. Czech tenant who screwed her for a couple of uh, rents at the end. And <laughs> but they are they are kind of you know the. Uh, they keep you far from, far from you. That's, that's just in their nature. You know, when we first started talking about the podcast, Pepe told me that he had this friend, Ines Stevanovich. She's from Sarajevo, and of course, Pepe used to live there. And Pepe told me that she had a good story, and he was right. She absolutely does. But it wasn't until we sat down with her that I realized it was absolutely bonkers as well. Ines 35 now. That means she was six when the Bosnian War broke out. When the war started, I remember, because we were still in Sarajevo. So it started in the 92 in May, pretty much. And I remember the first day that it started because we went to a friend's birthday party. Uh, it was her, I think, sixth birthday. And it was just across the street from our building. And we were just like going to the party as kids with my mom. And we got stuck in her apartment because the barricade started exactly on that day. It was May 2nd. I remember her birthday be always because of that day. And we couldn't cross the street to go back home. So we stayed the whole night in the basement of her building and came back the next day to our house. We were still living in Bosnia for six months 
before we left. Uh, at the beginning, it was like, oh, it's going to pass. It's fine. My mom went to a store. They bought some cans for some time. But we basically finished the cans in two months. And the war was almost four years, as you know. So we didn't really know that it's going to last so long. So it was always like, oh, it's going to pass. It's going to be okay. But it wasn't. There was no food. I remember that, like not having food, being in the basement for the whole time and so on. And I also remember having our things packed in the apartment and kind of not knowing if we are supposed to leave or not. I remember having school in the house because my teacher was coming to our house to teach the kids. Kids were coming from the whole neighborhood and my dad said that it was insanity because kids would come to our house and then risk being killed to go back to their house, you know, after. So the school and everything was very risky. We did things kind of without thinking. I think the same was with these bags, just like, okay, we should leave. We don't have windows. It's like the bombing. We are all the time in the basement, but you still are kind of hoping always, I guess. People were leaving, friends of my parents with kids. So my parents were constantly discussing, should we, should we not, and so on, knowing that the man couldn't. So it was not like something that we did quickly, that my parents did quickly. And we had the things, I remember things like in the house, like waiting for some convoy to bring us. But we lost all the convoys because my mom didn't want to leave. And the last one that was going that my father already said, I think you should go take this one was to Czech Republic that we actually didn't know anybody here. It was just uh, like decision just like that. We didn't have any connection to Czech Republic. So finally, after keeping her family in a war zone for six months, Anna's mother relents. And she and Anna and Anna's older sister take their packed bags and they join the convoy to the Czech Republic. But that meant saying goodbye to Anna's father and not knowing if they'd ever see him again. Men couldn't leave because uh-huh. they had to like either serve the army or if they were older than, in that case, 15 you couldn't leave. It was also very dangerous. They could stop you on the way and just like kill you or recruit you or, you know. So for men, it was pretty much impossible unless you had like very strong political connections to leave through like UN or something like that. If you were just a normal person who wanted to leave, it it didn't work. So it was just uh, basically mothers with kids and female kids mostly because even if you had like 15-year-old boy, it would be dangerous. And we had to pass with by bus from Sarajevo to split. It took us like a day because we were we had like escort to go through Bosnia. So it was a very long trip. And uh, I remember it being terrible, like I was throwing up, you know. We didn't have food in Sarajevo. Then they took us to Kiseljak where they had a lot of food and they gave us a lot of food. And we all ate like so much that I was throwing up the rest of the trip. So everyone remembers that trip being terrible. And in Split, we took a plane that they sent for us, the Czechs, and we came to Prague. My mother told me after that we didn't think, we didn't have anything planned. Like people that had things planned, they would like go take another plane somewhere else where the situation was better and ask for asylum. But my mom was like, I just didn't know anything. I didn't know you could like 
ask for asylum somewhere. I didn't like I didn't have any information about how you become a refugee. So we just like took the plane, came to Prague and took another bus that took us to the refugee camp. So the camp was close to Doxi, which is 70 kilometers from Prague, close to Mahovo Jezero. It was quite tough. For us, I would I wouldn't say even so terrible. For my sister, she has terrible memory of it. I don't even have so terrible memories. We had friends, I went to school, it's like, you know, like we were children. But for my mom was horrible because she couldn't work. All the jobs that she was allowed to do were like terrible she had to like pick apples do physical work she was making cakes she's a psychologist so nothing that she actually you know wanted to do and it was a very very bad environment my mother doesn't have very good memories of Czech people everyone just tried to like use the resources that were given to refugees so like People were stealing what they could steal, you know, they would send food and you would see Czech people like going with bags of food that was meant to be for us. There was a lot of like negative comments that she had to go through, like people were showing her how to turn on the washing machine, you know, when you grew up in a, she was living in a city that was doing way better a year before than the whole Czech Republic was doing. And now you come and they're showing you how to turn on the washing machine. And so, you know, this is for her, it was really kind of humiliating. Everyone was kind of in this desperate situation, trying to leave the place. You couldn't leave the place. People were trying. We were trying through forests to get to Germany, but they were caught and sent back. It was not EU, obviously, so everyone wanted to go away from Czech Republic. It was one of the, let's say, worst places to be if you are a refugee because you didn't have anything. You didn't get a place to, to stay. You didn't get any help. Help was maybe 50 euros or less for the three of us which wasn't basically nothing so my mom decided in november 94 during the war that we are going back just to clarify going back to sarajevo back to the war zone the place where it was too dangerous to walk to your neighbor's house for school and of course it wasn't easy to find a way back to where they came from and they were running a bit of a risk because once you leave you can't receive refugee status a second time Okay, just in case you were unaware or too young at the time of the Bosnian War to remember the details, there was a tunnel beneath the Sarajevo airport, and it linked the city to an area held by the United Nations. It was about a thousand meters long, dug mostly by hand, and it was primarily used to get weaponry and food in and people out. Of course, in Enna's case, it was used to get them back in. So we went uh, down Igman, the, the mountain, I remember that. We came to some uh, house, it was dark. And our father picked us up there. So we saw him after two years. So he came there. We went to some house in the mountain. I have very vague memory of that. We had suitcases and I had some shoes. And they told me, like, take off those shoes. You're going in the mud. Tunnel was full of mud. And they gave me some, like, uh, rubber boots to wear. My sister as well. And the suitcases, they took all our stuff. And this one guy said, okay, I'm going to go with the stuff down. If I arrive, well, you'll have the stuff. If I don't, well, you don't have the stuff. I remember that. That's when I became scared. And then they told us that we have to be really silent going down because 
I guess you could get killed. So we went, we came down to the tunnel, we entered and uh, my dad had all the stuff. And I remember my sister said the most stupid thing. And she's like, oh, these things, we can't sit on them because there were some keramics in it. And my father is like, shut the f- <laughs> don't mention anything people are just bringing food and water you know so he had some stuff and he had to walk like like this like have his down uh, head down i was the only one that could actually walk straight in the tunnel so they were like oh you, you are great you know you can just pass normally through the tunnel. so we passed through the tunnel and then some other van was waiting for us and took us home and we arrived to the flat where we lived before we left and i remember that I opened none of my stuff were there because my dad burned them as for heat, you know. So we had some clothes there and it was all like super small for me. So that's my first memory of that entering the room and like opening things. And there were some things that my dad spared that he said like he didn't he want to wanted to keep it for us, you know, even though everything all the dolls and everything was burning in the you know <laughs> to have heat in the, there was no electricity or gas or anything. So you come back and from that moment there is another year, three months of war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In which my father gets injured also. Yeah. So in 95 he got injured. We were, luckily we were there when he was injured. He was injured in, I think, November 95. He was in the doctor and they have, they were sent all, all, all over to like treat the injured people. And in some point he was in this like wooden house in Treskavica mountain and he had a patient and a bomb fell and he tried to pick up the patient and as he lifted him lift himself to take the patient down they threw another grenade and he was injured in both his legs has a, a hole in one of them and another one is shorter six centimeters because they had to connect the nerve and then it took him he had I think nine surgeries only with both legs wow. he's 80 percent disabled yeah. But still, out of parentheses, out of the interview, yeah. we still came to repair my heating as a doctor yeah. who knew how to repair my heating in Sarajevo. <laughs> he knows everything. He knows how to repair everything. You know, So that's the school you get, I guess, <laughs> not having things. <laughs> so your mother, after making this decision, bringing oh, everybody yeah. back, what We was are she? mentioning that to her every time, all the time. Like, you brought us back to the war. We are telling her it's the worst decision you made. Still everyone now? told her. Everyone. We are all the time joking about it. When she comp- <laughs> when she's like, you know, in, in the Balkans we joke about everything. When she's like criticizing some parent, my brother always tells her, "You brought your children to the war." Like, <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> As a child in the refugee camp, Anna had kept herself entertained by learning the piano. And after she returned to Sarajevo, she went on to study music, first in Bosnia and then in Croatia. And when she got the opportunity to study in Prague at a prestigious conservatory for free, she took it. She says she always thought fondly about Prague, that it was kind of a bright spot in that dark era in the refugee camp. But a lot of people didn't have such a positive opinion of the Czech Republic, and they chose not to stay. Anna told us that many of the people around her just felt unwelcome. I think there was always the thing of like kind of uh, separating the foreign from the Czech. And I still 
still think it's like that. Of course, newer generations, it's much better, but it's still okay, you can be here, but do not mix much. The same with the refugee. They were like, put them in the camp, they're all together, that's it, do not mix much. And I still see it happening like that. They all, they never make the system work. Why? Because they always have some camp in which they put all the people and they try to like separate them from the society. My mom got the chance in the 94 to like go to Brno, get actually a job. She said, if I did that, if, if that happened, we would probably be okay. We would maybe stay because we would start mixing and so on. But these camps that they do, it's always terrible. And the only thing you want to do in that camp is leave somewhere where you will actually be treated as a human. Although you are a refugee, if you have your own place to stay, if you can do something that's not constantly listening to stories from other women and their husband and how someone got killed and how someone got this, it was hell for these women because you were just always in this bubble of terror you constantly listen to what happened to some family this one's left there and this one lost her husband this one got the it's you just want to leave all the women i know that came back to bosnia they hate it some of them didn't even come here like I'm, i told them i like, come to prague like, oh, no way i don't even want to see that place yeah. so because they have this memory of just not belonging here my mom got it over with because now she's coming in a different context but people that didn't come here in a different context, they hate it. People can't imagine like white person educated from a city that speaks, I don't know, languages and has a degree like being a refugee because they always think of refugees, at least here, as some like low level of people and then they criticize them for having a phone or for like they came here, they, they brought this or they had that, they have... I'm like, of course they have it. Like, I was a refugee. I had a perfectly normal life. We were kids, we were going to school, we, my parents are educated, had good jobs, we had a flat, and suddenly, boom, and you have nothing. It's not your fault. You are not like a lower like class human because you are a refugee that's the only thing that i'm always trying to explain to people but the biggest difference here it makes when i say that i was a refugee anyone can be a refugee you can be a refugee like you it's not your fault it's not because you did something wrong it's just things happen you are with you don't have a house suddenly you don't have a job you don't have money and you are with nothing and you have to try to understand that the only thing that these people are, they want is normal life. That's the only thing we wanted, to have normal life. You don't want anything more. You just want to have what you had like six months before. I don't think you can change anyone, you know, people are how they are, you know, until they see and hear stories of like real people who they know, I, th I don't think they can empathize. I don't think they can understand because they, it's always something abstract. Once you talk to a person you know and that tells you the story that like happened to them, that's for me the only way. You know? That was the first of a 10-part podcast series, Foreign Insiders Exploring Migration and Humanity in the Czech Republic. It's a self-funded project produced and hosted by Morgan Charles and Giuseppe Pekeka 
in response to Czech Republic's neglect of refugees and the blatant xenophobia expressed by its political leadership. The series will culminate in the stories of people who have sought international protection. You can subscribe and listen to the whole series by searching for Foreign Insiders in all the usual podcast places. Sometimes the most difficult place to escape from is our own prison. Please be vigilant as adult themes and intense experiences are featured in this next piece. So if this isn't for you or the people around you, you might want to opt out for the next 20 minutes. This is Mirror Song. If you were brave enough to use your time here to reflect what I know and see what I see cracked in your rear view, then this lament that's about to be heard by you would not go wasted. Like the daily incantations you frequently let loose, that tarry no weight as dawn awakens you. When your very best wishes fade like featherweights, as you realise that the world is not here for your merriment, but rather if you now listen for your utter transfiguration instead of tiptoeing through meanings and awakenings and meandering through rhapsody, picking at nothing. Shipwrecks of dead skeleton keys suitable for unlocking only dead weight hysteria. When the melodies you truly seek are sitting like birds on your shoulders, waiting for you to return and sing to them. Without hearing such melodies, Necessity dictates that you must drown. Submerge yourself in a sea so dense it will emaciate your becoming like thick, vulgar cleaning fluid on blocking your pain. There's no running by you from this, just the pants and suffocation of expiring lungs that have kept you breathing with false tendrils until all that you held dear will be washed away in one ignominious tide so instant it will leave you wondering was I here at all before? Before this indecent exposure revealed there was no emperor, that I concealed no purpose or poise, just storing shards of decommissioned parts, always struggling to rebuild yourself, always ordering your flat 
backpack prison that you always receive with missing instructions to release yourself. the drowning, let's return to the heart of your unravelling, the slow drip, tick-tock of self-erosion, your gradual death by a thousand ifs and buts, your self-styled procession of another mislaid day, week, year, the flower of your life picked into dull dead, not all at once, but insidious creeping and crawling around your legs, until the concrete of your support system that's kept you upright and afloat, ghost slips on phantom limbs, collapsing into now and then avoiding steep staircases until you can't return the gaze of me, your accuser, me, the glacial, unwelcomed house guest that arrives and then never leaves. Stripping the sinews of your rotten Adam's apple, stripping your voice and causing you to choke and be left offering mute melodies of vanities and mourning. Of course others will not notice your suffering, and those that do will nearly always look away, avert and avoid the cruelty of the slipping. Instead they comment on and persist with your flattery, Haircuts, handshakes, holidays and hip hip hoorays, the wish list of global board games. Once bitten into, thinning, effervescent in the bloodstream, rendering the Edenic even more mundane. Through graduate iterations of shopping mall seasons, each season a Vegas poised to steal your ether. They don't look. They cannot look, because if they look, they'll see in their own cracking reflection the clacking of their own inheritance. And while they publicly proclaim to be born internationalists, in truth, they remain small-minded and blinded by localised idiocy. At this line start the forensics. You're stealing from pamphlets, relics and firearms in order to punch above your weight to try to get out of this amniotic slut. Realising how an impotent world is evidently... 
ejaculated all over you. And now you have the UV light to see it clearly. You stumble, mumble, tumble through new rudiments of old ideas and oddly found gurus. You hear a strange god's voice call you to pull back your soul suburban curtains of your perception in order to encant languages you don't understand. And at times you feel free garbed in the radiance of newness. At others you feel like you stumbled into a charity shop that peddles and sells beliefs sold so cheaply and when you try them on you feel bolder enough to invite friends to homemade fashion shows when you proudly peacock your naked frame and wear dead threads found in strangers soiled pockets vanity and melt you into a new tribe, a docile herd that finally recognises the Rubicons you have and wish to cross, because they too have dined off the same dead carcasses and recognise you are their new word for prey. A new recruit reporting in dutifully. A shiny crackpot vessel. Wabi sabi. Wasu wabi. Wabi woo woo lee ha here. To be recalled and moulded beautifully via climaxed yearning for unlit fireworks that must be reignited, whatever the cost. Come, come, bathe in our incandescence. We have lit these lights for your rekindling. We have carried them to you mindful of their fragile flickering. So that together, a must ignorance will be skin deep in our shallow reflection. Will shroud you in mystery, bathe you in brotherhood, save you from your solitary slipping, your new mask for your unearned aria. that a hairline crack appears on any king's throne when being anointed, that just the mere sitting on it reveals their timeless deceit, and that kings in their oft bastard hereditary know this, and in an effort to preserve their thrones hover 
just above them until the backbone of their people then rots from their distress. Would you change how you up and outwards? For until you spot and mind this crack in reality, you will constantly be duped by false nobility. Remain deaf to their dissonant, cheap, cracker crown cymatics. And so you will pay royally to sit in dull conference rooms and hear men, they're nearly always men, save your soul, who after exiting stage right will wash away their fake tans and throw in the garbage the skin-deep penny wisdoms they just sold you for a song. Still, you've taken notes? Diarised your intentions. This could be your coronation year. Surely soon you too will be king of the world. Step up! Step up! Step up! If you wish this can and will go on forever, this school of mirrors, this aloneness of crowds, this collective bribery, this soiled deceit, till eventually you wake up, your salad days long digested, now withered too tired and unwilling to cross the thresholds of the city just to see your lonely mother who right now sits by the window where she last saw you leave, moving abacus beads, counting her solitary hours, recalling you, praying for you, hoping with every fibre of her being that you will come to your senses. You'll return and once again take up the place kept for you at the head of your table. A rightful heir to an inheritance. A bloodline from which you've cut all ties and sprung into the tourniquet of madmen. Anticipating this familiar request, you send her a postcard that announces the postponing of your visit. Nothing now offering you local succor and sustenance. You turn to the treasured wisdom of others' native sacredness. Desperate to now sever your past and converge with demons, phantoms and imps. So strong in this indigenous pool and so weak your umbilical cord that within weeks will surely renounce your place of birth. Where there is so much failed deliverance and shared loneliness of others. Instead, take your chaos elsewhere to street corners where proud, wise men sell their ancient wisdom for pennies on the dollar. You've learned to spot dark tourists ravaged by their failed homecoming, who no longer recognize or call their mothers self-made ghosts scared of their own kinship 
made daily sick by the sight of themselves in their flickering quotidian reflection, who come to free themselves of traumas and knots, into unknown Amazonian depths that can consume them with one little bitter whisper. With the guide that now shepherds you, who has crossed the threshold you seek, you swallow his medicine whole and hard and wait for the chimed ecstasies of release. When you eventually return, having drained every cup of alacrity dry to your still, dull, meagre lodgings, the coffee stain is still where you left it. This amazes you. You don't waste time. You need to saturate the space and thus quickly call up second-hand friends and summon them to hear your foreign fables. and prepare to hold court, regale them with your trip visions. Within minutes of the story, you notice they are somehow distracted and, yes, bored, hovering off their seats to leave. Someone you don't recognise starts recanting their own journey of a few months ago to another native she too has seen demons and communed with spirits. How is this possible? To have crossed these strange thresholds and be utterly bereft of anything totemic. No residue of meaningful self that resonates and lingers. And so you blame your guide for not taking you deeper, even though at this very second he is communing with angels you sought and paid him for. Some months later you realise you are again now in a different type of maze. A broken elevator stuck on repeat. Go up. Go up. Go, go up. Go up. You're in the depths of discotheque despair. Go down. You're in the grips of desperate Western medicine. Neither providing sanctuary or refuge you seek. For the first time, you consider genuine self-exploration. There's a strong, strange relief in the possibility of this, and terror that you could so easily imagine the earth barren of you. However, you are too 
cowardly to countenance this for too long. This self, this I, this I am, is the plastic lifeboat from which you always try to save yourself. It remains as always poised, ready and inflated. To save you from yourself, from genuine surrender, from unknown seas where stray rips and tides might actually swallow you whole, into actual depths, to become the sustenance for whale bones and bottom feeders. If you now knew what I know, if you have listened for what I have seen, then this lament would not belong to you. You would cast out your cheap dime store revelations and stop making sacred feet of clay and instead you would notice, just notice the drops of rain that travel dark rivers and cross continents to be at your window expressing the tears of all forgotten mothers one wondering about the cause of their children. They only long to sing you the song lines that they whistle to you over and over when you were in their bellies. For only they could conceive of that barren moment, that glimmer of inception, when your reflected self wasn't yet conceived of. To those prelude days before you actually walked the earth, and sought gurus to tell you what you already knew. For only they carry this memory. If only you'd ask and take time to share with you when you were ripped and poured into this world, screaming to flee their darkness. darkness. That was Mirror Song, A Dark Lament, written by Fragment and performed by Emeka Diamond, directed by Danny Lucar, with sound design by Lucia Scadzocchio, and that's me, and you've been listening to Transmitter, a social broadcast production. 
All the details of what you've heard will be available on the transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. And this has all been made possible by the wonderful Resonance FM. As always, this program is coming to you live and for free. But for this month, we're asking you, our listeners, to support Resonance by setting up a regular donation. That's the best way to help Resonance make long-term plans to maintain and support broadcasts. So to do this, all you have to do is visit fundraiser.resonance.fm and set up that regular donation. Think of all those takeaway coffees you're not buying right now. I've just calculated that's what I don't know four or five a week. So what four or five a week? Thirteen quid. Four or five a week. Fifty pounds a month. Fifty pounds a month. No, that can't be right. I can't be spending six hundred pounds a year on coffee. No way. Okay, I think this is a much better use of my money, a regular donation to Resonance FM. Anyway, I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in April. And if you have any recommendations, please do drop me a line via the website. Until then, happy listening. <laughs>